0: Open your Bibles to Luke, Luke's Gospel, chapter 23. But I've just got to say, wow, Cindy, thank you. That was awesome. I live in the same neighborhood with Cindy and Rick, but I don't get to see them except here, it seems like. They live right down the road. We hardly ever see each other, but um, you've had eight months to work on that. That was good. (laughs) I've had eight months to work on this sermon, so y'all are in for trouble. We might be here a while. No, I'm just kidding. One of the things I've looked at this last off-season and really the last couple of months, I remember as a young child, a preacher came to our church and preached this message called The Seven Last Words of Christ from the Cross. and It's just been on my mind, so I've been studying that, and studying what Jesus said from the cross. It's more than seven words, by the way. It's phrases, but it will it give you an impact of what took place on the cross. You see, we get to Easter, and we all know the message. Pastors around the world today are preaching a similar message. They're either going to talk about the crucifixion or the resurrection. If they don't, you're going to go up and give them a calendar and remind them of what day it is. It's it's Easter. We celebrate a risen Lord. But because the story is so familiar, I'm a little concerned that it's too commonplace, that we have gotten to the point where we've heard it all. Kind of like when you fly on an airplane. You don't pay attention anymore, do you? I was speaking to a group of students at Christian Academy about a month ago, and I asked them, I said, how many of you all fly? And then I had to explain, I mean on an airplane. But, you know, they go through the instructions, right? They tell you, you know, there may be an oxygen mask. It falls down from the ceiling. If that happens, put your mask on first. Don't worry about the people around you. Put yours on first, and then maybe assist them if they're still breathing. Your seat bottom may be used for a flotation device. I just think it would be great if one of them would say, and sorry that it's wet from our last landing, you know. That would at least get my attention. I did fly one time from the east coast to the west coast, and it's on one of these cheaper airlines. I can't remember the name of it, but apparently they allow them to use humor. Uh, the, the lady making the announcement said, uh, in the back is my ex-husband and his new wife <laughs> will be serving you in the back. I thought, okay, you got my attention, you know. I wonder if she said something else I should have been listening to. So this morning, we're not going to be like sitting on an airplane hearing instructions that we just kind of our eyes roll back in the back of our head. I want you to really think about what Jesus experienced on the cross and listen to what he actually said. So let me set the context of this in Luke's Gospel, chapter 23, beginning in verse 33. Verse 33. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him and the criminals, one on the right and the other on the left. But Jesus was saying, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they're doing. So the first thing that Jesus says from the cross is, Father, forgive them. So my first question is, who is them? Well, it's at least those four guards that have just nailed him to a cross. How do we know there's four? Well, we believe there's four because they divided Jesus' garments. He would have had five garments. They divided his four garments and they came to the fifth garment, couldn't divide it. Why? Because it was a seamless tunic. So what did they do? They cast lots for it. So Jesus Christ is dying on the cross. They're gambling over his clothes. And here's what Jesus says. Father, forgive them they don't know what they're doing. But I think it's more than that. I don't think it's just those four guards. I think he's even saying, Pilate and Herod, who had the power of life or death over Jesus, Jesus is saying, Father, don't hold it against them. They don't really get what they are doing. In fact, Jesus had been arrested on Thursday night after the Last Supper. He went to the Garden of Gethsemane and he prayed this incredible prayer, apparently for hours in agony praying. Father, if there's any other way for this cup to pass me, if there's any other way, what's he saying? If there's any other way to save mankind and forgive their sins than for me to die on the cross, let's do it another way. But there was no other way. In fact, hundreds of years had pointed to this event that was about to take place. And so I think when he says, Father, forgive them, I think he's talking about Pilate and Herod, the people that ultimately had him put to death. They didn't want to kill him. Pilate tried his best to get out of it. He sent him over to Herod. They were mortal enemies. They didn't even like each other. But they became friends that day. In fact, in Luke's Gospel, same chapter, verse 12, it said, Herod Herod and Pilate became friends with one another that very day, for before they had been enemies with each other. Well, what did Herod do? Pilate sent Jesus to Herod. What did Herod do? He sent him back to Pilate. So then I think Pilate came up with, I'm not going to be able to get out of this. Somebody's going to be crucified, so let me offer them this thing that I do every year at the Passover. One of the things he did for the Jews was he offered them to release a prisoner to them. And I think I think Pilate went to the prison and said, "Give me the worst guy we got. What's his name? Barabbas. All right, let's give me Barabbas." So he st- stands up, Barabbas, convicted criminal, deserves to die. Everybody knew that, but he stands Jesus and he says, "Which one do you want me to release to you?" And they call for Barabbas to be released. So Jesus is going to be crucified in the place of Barabbas, who should have done it. You and I can identify with Barabbas because Jesus is going to die in our place. In fact, the word Barabbas means son of a father. We're all sons and daughters of a father. Barabbas that day, I don't know what happened to Barabbas after that day. But on that day, he was set free and he didn't deserve it any more than you and I deserve it. Father, forgive them. Who else is them? I think it's the religious leaders. Some of the religious folks who a week earlier had cried, Hosanna, glory to God in the highest. But on Friday, they were crying crucifying. But let me get to the point. I think he's also talking about us. What Jesus did on the cross was earned our forgiveness. And what a rich word. You and I struggle with the word forgiveness because we can't do what God does with forgiveness. The word forgiveness literally means to send away, to send forth or send away. When someone does something to you and you say, I forgive you, what can't you do? You can't forget. We want to forget, but you can't forget. So what happens if they do something against you again? You've probably kept a record. John F. Kennedy said, forgive your enemies, but never forget their names. Why? Because we're human. All right, I'll forgive you, but three strikes, you're out. And it may not even get to three strikes. You may have already started with a strike. Father, forgive them. What's Jesus say? Father, this sin, take it away. But more than that, folks, when he died on the cross, it was for our forgiveness. Your sin that God hated, Jesus paid the penalty for that on the cross. And you and I, because of his death, and our faith in him as our Lord and Savior, can be forgiven. And how does God forgive? He forgives by sending it away. The Bible says as far as the east is from the west, he remembers it no more. He's God. He's not forgetful. But he's God. He's supernatural. He's sovereign. He's able to do what you and I can't do. He can forget it and not hold it against you. Your sins are forgiven second thing that he says is also in Luke's Gospel, down in verse 43. Just to set the context, we've already heard that there were two criminals being crucified with Jesus. Jesus Christ, spotless Lamb of God, perfect man, God, never sinned. People are walking by hurling insults at Him. Saying things like, if you really are God, why don't you prove it? Why don't you come down off the cross? Well, the criminals on either side of him, this one over here, is joining in with them. This guy's dying, and he's going to use his last breath to hurl insults at Jesus. Finally, the criminal on the other side had had enough. He kind of looks, looks over across Jesus, and he says, in my language, he basically says, Would you just be quiet? Don't you fear God? Do you not understand this man's done nothing wrong? You and I deserve what we're getting. And then he looks at Jesus and he says, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And here's the words that he hears Jesus say. He never heard sweeter words than this. Verse 43, Jesus said to him, truly I say to you, today you shall be with me in paradise. Folks, that's the simple gospel. What had this guy done to earn this? Nothing. Jesus didn't look at him and say, you know, you're a fine, upstanding citizen. Why? Because he wasn't. He was dying. But he had acknowledged his sin and asked for a Savior. I can't put the gospel much more simply than that. How do we come to Christ? We acknowledge our need of a Savior. We acknowledge our sin. And we acknowledge Christ as a Savior. And we cast ourselves upon him. Remember me when you come into your kingdom. And what does Jesus say? I tell you the truth today. You'll be with me in paradise. The word paradise is really the root word means garden. Never thought about that a lot until this year, but I thought, you know, where did man start out? Adam and Eve. In a garden. It was paradise. It was perfect. What happened? Sin entered. What did Jesus do on the cross? He paid the penalty for that sin and all the sins since then. So that that guy would spend eternity in paradise. And even better than that is, with Jesus. For a guy to be dying on the cross and know that he deserved it. The criminal. To hear Jesus say. Today. You're going to be with me. And it's not going to be on the cross. It's not going to be suffering and in pain. It's going to be. Paradise. Sweeter words that man surely. Had never heard. Then the third thing. Interesting. If you're following along in Scripture, just look at John's Gospel. In fact, if you want to kind of figure out where this all occurs, Luke's Gospel records three sayings. John's Gospel records three sayings. Matthew and Mark each record one. And if you're doing the math, you're saying, wait a minute, I thought there were seven. Well, Matthew and Mark record exactly the same one. So we're looking at John's Gospel to get what I believe is the third thing that Jesus says from the cross. It's in chapter 19. Verses 26 and 27. Jesus is dying on the cross. He looks down and sees his mother, and he sees John, the disciple whom he loved. And when he saw his mother and the disciple whom he loved standing nearby, he said to his mother, Woman, behold your son. Then he said to the disciple, Behold your mother. From that hour, the disciple took her into his own household. Interesting thing. The first three things that Jesus said from the cross had to do with other people. Father, forgive him. Today you'll be with me in paradise. And then he's taking care of his mother. I, I just, I, I gotta tell you, selfishly, humanly, if that was, if I was there, I would have been saying, "Get me off this place," or, or I'm in pain. But the first three, three things he says are about other people. And he looks at his mom, and he says, "Mother, behold your son. Son, John, behold your mother." What was Jesus doing? He was worried about who's gonna take care of mom. Now, did Jesus have brothers and sisters? Yes. That may surprise some of you. Scripture, if you read the Bible, yeah. He had three brothers and at least two sisters. But what did we know about them at this point? They weren't believers. In fact, they thought Jesus was pretty crazy at this point. Now, after the cross, they come to faith in Christ. James became a leader in the first century church. Jude wrote Jude. But at this point, although they were alive, Jesus was thinking, I can't trust him to take care of mom. So he says, John, take care of your mother. And it says from that day forth, John took her into his home to take care of her. Jesus is interested and cares about others. Now, the other thing we learn from that is, where's the other disciples? They're not at the cross. They're hiding in a room somewhere with the door locked because they are scared to death they're going to be next. So the third thing Jesus says, he's, concerned about someone else. We shouldn't be surprised of that, why? Cuz he thought about you. He went to the cross for you. The fourth thing is over in Matthew. This also is recorded in Mark, but we'll just look at the recording in Matthew chapter 27. Let me set the context. We're going to get to verse 46 of Matthew 27. Let me start with verse 45. Now from the sixth hour, darkness fell upon the, the land until the ninth hour. Okay? So Jesus, we know from Matthew, Mark, and Luke's gospel, crucifixion began in about the third hour. They started counting at sun up around six o'clock in the morning. So it was about nine o'clock in the morning when they crucified Jesus. So he's been on the cross about three hours, and he said these three things. But before he says the fourth thing, it's about noon. What do we know about the sun normally at noon? It's right overhead. It's as bright as it can get. And what happens? It goes dark. Now, people have written books over how did the sun go dark. And everybody wants to explain it naturally. Best explanation I've ever heard that makes no sense, but best explanation I've ever heard is it was a solar eclipse. Y'all heard that one? When Jesus died on the cross, must have been. Had to have been a solar eclipse. What a coincidence. Anybody know why it couldn't be a solar eclipse? Any scientist among us? Okay, it lasted for too long, but I got a better one than that. It was a full moon. It was the Passover. Passover always occurred at a full moon. Why can't the moon come between the sun and the earth when it's full? Because it's on the other side of the earth. So you got the sun, you got the earth, you got the moon. Go home today and get a basketball, a softball, and a golf ball. Teach your kids. I've done that. Here's what happens. They're just like, can I have my balls back? We want to go play. Okay, so now, could it have been a solar eclipse? Here's what God would have had to do. God would have had to take his finger and take the moon and move it. Could he have done that? He could have. Did he do that? I don't know. All I know is this. It got dark. Some people say it was a dust storm, and that occurs sometimes down in the desert. About 2,000 feet below, you know, further down the the mountain from Jerusalem. And so could the wind have blown the dust up? It could have. Or could God have just said, the same way He did in Genesis, let there be light? Maybe He just said, let there be darkness. The night Jesus was born, it says the angels appeared to the shepherd on the hillside, and the glory of God lit up the sky. Well, now the opposite's happening. Jesus Christ is being put to death. On the cross, in our place, and the lights go out. And I don't think I've, I've thought a lot about that until this year. But how dark is it when it gets dark? When it's not like modern day, where you know they don't have like these things that lights automatically come on when it gets dark. There may have been a little fire at the foot of the cross where the soldiers were warming up their lunch. I, I don't know, but folks, I bet it got dark, and it was dark for about three hours. And in the middle of that darkness, Jesus says the fourth thing that he's going to say from the cross. And here's what he says about the ninth hour. So it's been dark three hours. Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, "Eli, Eli, lama sabachthani. Anybody know what that means? Well, if you got your Bibles open, it tells you right after that. That's Aramaic for, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And there's a lot of people that struggle with that whole concept of how could God forsake Jesus on the cross. And did he forsake Jesus on the cross? Folks, I think this is the most painful thing Jesus experienced on the cross. I don't read him saying, ouch. He had been beaten. He had had soldiers put a blindfold on him and punch him and say, why don't you prophesy who it was that just hit you? According to Isaiah 50, they pulled his beard They placed a robe on his back, a stick in his hand for a scepter, and then a crown. But it wasn't the crown you'd want. It was a crown of thorns, three-inch-long thorns pressed down onto his scalp. And I never hear him say, ouch. But here's what hurt him the most. In that moment, been on the cross now for about six hours in agony. Folks, one of the things that was agonizing about the cross is your arms are stretched out. Jesus had been beaten, and he would have to push up just to take a breath. In fact, that was really kind of the way death occurred on the cross most of the time. It was asphyxiation. The Romans didn't invent crucifixion, but they perfected it. The guy credited with it inventing it was a guy that had this belief that the earth was so sacred that if you were going to put somebody to death, you had to elevate him off the earth. And so that's why they did that. But the Romans had made it A perfection. They wanted you to die. They wanted it to take days for you to die. Why? Because they wanted everybody to see. They wanted this to be an object lesson. When you were coming in or out of town, they wanted you to be seen. Because they wanted you to say, whatever he did, I don't want to do that. They wanted them to tell their children, see that boy, that man on the cross? Don't end up like that. He's a criminal. And that's what happens to criminals. And so about... Three o'clock in the afternoon, Jesus says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? For the first time in eternity, not just his life on earth, but the first time in eternity, he felt separated from God. Did God turn his back on Jesus? I don't know. That's kind of what's inferred. But I know this. God hates sin so much that at the moment of Christ's death, he had the sin of the world on him. And some people struggle with that. If you read books, you'll fi- you'll finally get an author that will say, well, I just, I just don't believe that. Well, okay. W- explain it to me. Jesus took the weight of the sin of the world on him, and God hates sin so much he couldn't look on it. And Jesus finally, for the first time in all of eternity, felt alone on the cross. His disciples by now had scattered. In fact, by this time, even the Marys at the foot and John, it says, in Luke's gospel said they had even withdrawn to a distance. Jesus is about to die all alone. And it was excruciating for him to think God's forsaken me. In fact, the verse that he's quoting is Psalms 22 verse 1. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Then the fifth thing that he says seems kind of insignificant But look at it. It's in John again. John's Gospel, chapter 19, verse 28. After this, lots happened already. After this, knowing that all things had already been accomplished, to fulfill the Scripture, he said, I am thirsty. You're kind of thinking, why is that important? I think it's important for a couple of reasons. One, Jesus gets to the point where all the Old Testament prophecy, and there's a bunch of it that prophesied his death on the cross, it had all been fulfilled. And he was about to make two final statements, and he doesn't whisper or whimper these statements. Scripture says he says with a loud voice. The last two things he's going to say, says with a loud voice. So I think he needed some moisture just to get to where he could speak. He's been beaten. He's lost a lot of blood already. He's been on the cross for six hours. They had offered him wine at the beginning of the crucifixion, but he didn't take it. And that wasn't the same wine that he gets here. That wine was more of a wine that would help numb the pain and maybe even make it a little easier to get him on the cross. He didn't take that. But this wine, in fact, some call it more of a vinegar, sour wine. He said, I'm thirsty. So the soldiers looked down. There was a a full jar of this sour wine that would quench your thirst. They took a reed and some hyssop. Interesting. Why is it interesting that it was hyssop? Well, back in Exodus chapter 22, when the death angel came, the children of God in the, in the wilderness, or in, the, in Egypt, were told to do this. They said, take a bunch of hyssop and dip it in the blood of the lamb that is in the basin and touch the lintel and the two doorposts with the blood that is in the basin. None of you shall go out of the house, the door of this house, until the morning. So they used hyssop back in the Old Testament. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 19, For when every commandment of the law had been declared by Moses to all the people, he took the blood of calves and goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, This is the blood of the covenant that God commanded for you. That word hyssop is used throughout the Old Testament and New Testament, pointing to this. It was used to apply the blood to the doorpost and lintel. It was used to... Make the book sacred. And for Jesus, it was used to offer him sour wine. Now, how how far was Jesus above the earth? I think I grew up, you know, with that old Southern Gospel song, thinking he was on a hill far, far away. Jesus wasn't like 100 feet up in the air. He was right by the roadside. His feet might have been 18 inches off the ground, but we know this, the reed was only about 18 inches, with the hyssop on the end of it. So for somebody to stretch it up and get it to his mouth, he couldn't be very far away. So he could hear everything that was going on. He could see everything that was going on. But in his thirst, they offered him this sour wine to quench his thirst so that he could say the last two things. And the sixth thing that he said is in verse 30 of chapter 19. Therefore, when Jesus had received the sour wine, he said, It is finished. And he bowed his head and gave up his spirit. It is finished. Can I just say that Jesus Christ died in God's timing? They did not take his life from him. He offered it up. He didn't die until it was finished. What was finished? The fulfillment of all the Old Testament prophecy. The fulfillment of the law that he came not to do away with, but to complete and to fulfill. It was finished. The debt had been paid. The sacrifice made. The last thing that would take place is he would die on the cross. And he paid the penalty for our sin. It is finished. Some people think it was simply him saying, I'm about to die. It is way more than that. He knew all things had been accomplished. He knew the Old Testament because he wrote it. He knew it backwards and forwards. And so he said, it's finished. And then he says the last thing. We've got to go back to Luke To hear the last thing that he says. Verse 46 of Luke 23. And Jesus crying out with a loud voice. He's had the sour wine. He's able to speak. And I believe this is the last thing he says. The sixth thing he said was it's finished. And he gave up his spirit. Here's him giving up his spirit. He actually says something. Cried out with a loud voice saying. Father into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this he breathed. His last. It's now about three o'clock in the afternoon. Darkness is coming. Light comes back on. He, he dies. Sun comes back out. Lights are on. It's been dark for three hours. Now it's daylight again. Do you think people are saying something is happening here? Normally, the Romans like to leave you on the cross for days to suffer. But the Jewish leaders came and said, because of the Passover, because the Sabbath is approaching, we want to take the bodies off the cross. So they went to do something merciful. They were going to go and break their legs. Why would that be merciful? Because they couldn't push up anymore to get their breath. So their legs would be broken. They would finally suffocate on the cross. They went to the first criminal, broke his legs. Went to the other criminal, broke his legs. They get to Jesus, what do they discover? He's already dead. Why is he dead? Because he's already given up his spirit. So they don't break his legs. In fact, that fulfills scripture that none of his none of his bones will be broken. So just to be sure, what do they do? They pierce his side so that blood, blood and water pour out. He was pronounced dead. He didn't just swoon. He didn't just pass out. He was stone-cold dead. They took him off the cross, added a 100 pounds of spice to his body, wrapped it in linen wrappings, and placed him in a borrowed tomb. Joseph of Arimathea, wealthy man. Nicodemus, both of them religious leaders who for their own reasons were kind of secret disciples up to this point. But they're out of the closet now, folks. They're not secret disciples anymore. They're at the foot of the cross asking for the body of Jesus. Do you think they got labeled from that point on? Absolutely. Jesus was placed in a borrowed tomb. It's okay. He didn't need it for long. This was Friday night. By Sunday morning, he was going to be out of the tomb. A risen, resurrected Lord. Three miracles that take place at the cross beside the fact Jesus died on the cross. One is the sun goes out for three hours. If you read right after this in Matthew, two more things happen. Both of them in verse 51. Well, i got to get to Matthew. Matthew 27, verse 51. And behold, the veil of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom, and the earth shook, and the rocks were split open. <laughs> Something cataclysmic had just happened. And it wasn't the earthquake. It was the Son of God had died on the cross. Two significant things happened. The veil in the temple. Scholars tell us this was a four-inch thick tapestry that if you'd put a wild horse on each corner, they couldn't have pulled it apart. What did it do? It separated man from God. Once a year, the high priest could go behind the veil and do his religious duties back there to atone on the Day of Atonement, Yom Kippur to atone for the sin of the people. And it was something they were scared to do. They tied a rope to their ankle just in case they died when they were back there. they could get pulled out because nobody else was going to go back there. What happened if you went back there unauthorized? You died. So what's God saying? The veil is finally ripped from top to bottom. God's saying, come on in. You now have access to the throne room of God. You have access to the presence of Almighty God. And there was an earthquake and tombs were open. One of the gospel writers tell us that people that have been dead are now up walking around. And one of the soldiers, after seeing all this, said, This must have been God. I think that's the understatement of the whole passage. You think? It's been dark for three hours. Veil in the temple's ripped from top to bottom. There's been an earthquake, and people you knew were dead are walking around. Guess what? The best is yet to come. The one you just killed is going to be up two days from now. On the third day, he will rise from the dead. So we come to the so what of the message. That's what Jesus said from the cross. Now let's make it personal. What difference has it made in your life? Well, if you don't hear me say anything else, hear me say this. The fact that Jesus Christ died on the cross offers you forgiveness and it offers you life. It's not universal in the sense that it just blankets everybody. You've got to come to the foot of the cross and ask Jesus Christ to be your Lord and Savior. You've got to do what the criminal on the cross did. You've got to say this, I know I'm a sinner and I'm asking you to be my Savior. Have you done that? If you have, today's a celebration, folks. I I shared this at the sunrise service. I don't see a lot of celebrating in the first century right after Jesus died. There were words like fear and trembling and she cried and all these things. And they were astonished. In fact, Thomas, what did he say? I'm not going to believe it until I can touch him. And he said it wasn't until eight days later that he got to see Jesus and finally believe. Folks, you and I have the perspective of history to look back and recognize Jesus Christ is alive. And you know it if you trusted him as your Lord and Savior. And if you never have, today should be the day of your salvation. Let's pray together. Bow your heads with me. Father, thank you for the truth of the cross. God. God, they can't explain it away. The soldiers went to the religious leaders and said, hey, he's not here anymore. And they said, well, let's tell a lie. Tell, the, tell everybody that the disciples came and stole his body. Listen, the disciples were scared to death. They weren't going anywhere near that to him. It took the women to go find out that he was, had risen from the dead. And when they told the men, they didn't believe. They had to go see it for themselves. And even then they were still astonished and didn't quite put it all together. Here's what we celebrate today, folks. We have a risen Savior. And as I place my faith in that Savior, I can be forgiven. So I invite you today. You can do it right where you're sitting and just say, Oh, Jesus, I trust you today as my Lord and Savior. I acknowledge that I'm a sinner. And I understand that Jesus Christ died on the cross for me. Would you please forgive me? Come into my life. Be my Savior. Folks, if you do that where you're sitting, I want to ask you to do one other thing. I want to ask you to tell somebody before you leave today. I'll be standing at the back shaking your hand. There'll be other people. Maybe that you're with somebody that you know, hey, I trust their walk with Christ. Just tell them, hey, I just ask Christ to be my Savior. Thank you. Thank you, God. Oh, what a Savior. In Jesus' name.